And welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something's Match of the Week, a series where myself, Lorcan Mullen, and your other co-host, Simon Cross, discuss a match that we take turns in picking from the wide history of professional wrestling, hoping to cover as many facets, times, trends, and unusual aberrations within the history of pro wrestling. And we're going fairly far into the past but fairly close to our hearts, Simon. Yes, and... Yes, and... Very good choice of words to open that. There we go. This match does have a lot of links to the modern day as well. Uh, We're talking about Kendo Nagasaki teaming up with the Rock and Roll Express. No, not Morton and Gibson, but a man by the name of Blondie Barrett taking on Stephen Regal and Robbie Brookside. I think it's Steve Regal. There's not even an N there. Because there was also a Steve slash Steven Regal in the US scene as well in the 80s. Which is why he changed to... No, no he changed to William uh, when he went to the WWF, didn't he? Because there were too many Steves on the go. It's funny because when he started, he called himself Steven William Regal. And then just they gradually dropped the Steven. Ah, okay. But he was the Goodwill Ambassador. So I wonder if that's why they called him William. His Goodwill. Makes sense. And I also remember that several months into his run... Mick Foley turned up because he was made the replacement commissioner after Mick Foley got sacked. And obviously Mick Foley hadn't been paying attention to Raw because he kept referring to him as Steve Regal. <laughs> Another example of that was when Stone Cold Steve Austin was feuding with Chris Moore and Chris Jericho. And he was saying how Jericho had him in the Lion Tamer. And it's like you've been paying more attention to him when he was in WCW than the past two years in the WWE where it's been called the Walls of Jericho. It's very odd. But I guess everyone has a cut-off point. So I'm not watching this crap anymore, especially if I'm in it. Yeah. And apparently, I think a lot of people said, I'm not watching this crap anymore when this was aired on a World <laughs> of Sport television. Because this was seen... I, I first became aware of this match from reading a book, skimming through it in a Waterstones or a Smith's or whatever. And not paying for it. Probably. And it was like the 100 worst matches in wrestling history. Something along those lines. And this was one of the ones that was brought up, and I read more into it because of its setting. Did you say where it was, uh, where this match took place? I didn't. Well, no. where, where are we, Simon? We're in Bedworth Civic Hall, aren't we? Mm. So the reason we've made allusions to our own closeness towards it is that Bedworth was where we met. And whilst it wasn't in the Bedworth Civic Hall, it was in a, an annex, I suppose, of the Civic Hall. Bedworth Art Centre. Bedworth Art Centre. Not a contradiction in terms. <sighs> I always wonder, how much do our international listeners now know about the sleepy sleepy hamlet of Bedworth as a result of us? Bedworth, it's not a bad place. It's stuck between Coventry and Nuneaton. Which is a city and a large town for your international listeners. Not Neither of them ones with the uh, strongest of reputations. No. Uh, Coventry's most famous for getting the hell blown out of it by the Germans in the war. Yes, to the point that the Nazis referred to doing something along that scale as to Coventrate a place. I didn't know that. <laughs> mm. And there's long been many held a conspiracy 
that Churchill was aware of the bombings that were going to take place in Coventry because of the whole Enigma code cracking and everything, but didn't want the Germans to know that they knew, and so they let Coventry essentially be burnt to a cinder. Yeah. That's the theory. Whether it's true or not is another matter entirely. But it was in towns like Bedworth, relatively sleepy towns as you describe. I mean, what's the population of Bedworth? Like 50,000? Oh, less than. The Neaton's only 70,000. Okay, so maybe 30,000. Oh, wow. I just looked up uh, the census and I was almost exactly right. It's uh, in 2011 anyway. It was 30,648. You didn't live in Bedworth, did you? You lived in Nuneaton. No, I lived in the Neaton. I'm uh, from the Stocking Ford region of the Neaton. Is that the part that's close to Bedworth? No, no. It's sort of like more Aviston way than Bedworth way. So how did you end up going to Bedworth? Was that just the nearest place that had... uh... It was through uh, meeting Luke College. And he's like, oh, here's what I do. Do you want to come do it? He's like, yeah, I'll do that. And Luke was from Bedworth. Uh, he was from Bulkington, but ah, uh, okay, yeah, Bulkington. Bulkington's the place that Bedworth makes fun of. Yeah, <laughs> that's how low down the rankings Bulkington is. Uh, but yeah, his that was his nearest drama group was mm. in Bedworth, and mm. they ran just before the improv workshops where we met. So to give you an idea, then Bedworth is this smallish town, very former mining town. Yeah, I was going to say very deprived. I guess that's fair. I would be curious to know what the Brexit results were there. It was definitely higher than fifty-two forty-eight. I would hazard a guess. Yes, I can pretty much guarantee that that was the case. <laughs> Although, interestingly, Bedworth was put into the Nuneaton constituency. It was like the other major constituency within the Nuneaton bar- like placing. Yeah. But sometimes it would even be referred to as Nuneaton and Bedworth. And that, for a while, became seen as the bellwether of whether Tories were going to win or not would be if they held on to the Nuneaton seat when they won it in 2010. Yeah. That's less the case now, and I think it is post-Brexit. It's a real calibration of that. But those were the places that World of Sport and, and the the British wrestling scene would work in. They wouldn't go so much to London, Birmingham, Manchester. They would do town halls, but they wouldn't be the bread and butter. The, yeah. the logic was more to go to places like Bedworth, or Nuneaton, or or the likes, uh, Bolton, a place like that, you know, a satellite to a major city, I suppose. Like your uh, Warrington, for Mm. example, would probably be a good one. Did you recognise anyone in the crowd? (laughs) No, no, mainly because obviously it's pre-smoking ban as well, so there's like a very dingy air to... to, uh... But it's also post-WWF expansion. And yeah. I think at this point, World of Sport wasn't on TV anymore. It was coming to the point where World of Sport wasn't on TV anymore. And instead, British wrestling was put on at a different time. But it would also have to share its time slot very often with matches from the WWF. What year was this match? Again? 86. 1986. So WrestleMania's happened at this point hasn't it like the british one. bulldogs are tag team champions yeah we were talking about this before we went on the air went on the air <laughs> we we were talking about our world of sport review when it was resurrected not so much a, a messianic revival as a charles the second saying let's dig up oliver cromwell and 
put him on trial. Put him on trial and hang him and quarter him. In one of the pettiest, but brilliant, most oh, such a power play move. You think British history is petty? You haven't even heard, read the half of it, Mister. Oh yeah, or Mrs. Whoever's listening. But yeah, like so, World of Sport is a name that has like a lot of cachet in terms of memory value. Mm, but this isn't World of Sport because World of Sport isn't a promotion, and I'm not sure if this was World of Sport telly at this point. No, but it's it's the very much the World of Sport style. Of it wrestling. is yes, but it's interestingly also it's because at this point. The TV show was shared between All Star Wrestling and joint promotions. Mm. All Star, I believe, were the ones that were owned by the Crabtrees. And they were the ones that, as the years wore on and British wrestling went off the telly, they gradually went to lower and lower extremes. I've read a book, there's a very good book called Qu- The oh, Wrestling. Quick, as- quick aside for those not in the know uh, Shirley Crabtree was the real name of Big Daddy, who was like. British Hulk Hogan, for want of a better term. Mm. Yeah, there's there's conflicting opinions on that. Brian Crabtree, I think, was the guy that sort of ran it and was very often the referee that you would see in the matches as well, though not for this one. And the promotional tactics as time went on became more and more desperate. And in the book that I was reading, The Wrestling, which I think was written around 1995-96, which was this writer getting to know about the British wrestlers that he'd grown up on as a kid and and to his shock, finding out that his favourite wrestler of all, Les Kellett, was hated by everyone backstage, who was who we covered in the previous match of the week that came from this era with him and uh, Leon Arras, a.k.a. Brian Glover, the character actor. Yeah. And at the time that I was reading it, their latest promotional tactic was to have the wrestling Power Ranger. Oh, God. Where they paid for a Power Ranger suit and someone would wrestle with a red Power Ranger suit on. And by the time that the show, the book was ending, they'd been sent a cease and desist letter. And that's sort of like a snapshot of what's to, what was to come after this particular era of British wrestling, where we would have people at like seaside shows be like the UK Undertaker or the UK Road Warriors. Well, that was those were all star shows. This yeah. like that's how low they sunk over time. We just like ripped anything that had any kind of like name value from the americans rather than having our own thing Mm -hmm. but it's still stuck between the two so the reason this match gets called one of the worst matches in in wrestling history is in no way down to the wrestling the wrestling from three of the four participants (laughs) is very well done throughout is that blondie barrett being the odd one blondie barrett being the odd man out in more ways than one but one of the reasons I also wanted to do this match, I think at some point we'll inevitably have to do Giant Haystacks versus Big Daddy at Wembley Arena, which I think is often cited as the biggest British wrestling match that we can get our hands on to watch, I suppose. Yeah. The other one that famously, legend goes, outdrew match of the day back in the 1960s was the Mick McManus-Jackie Palo match. But I don't believe there's footage of that available to us. I'll do some digging down and mm. finding out. If you was to do like a family fortunes, reverse pointless situation, name a wrestler from the world of sport British era. The four names that would come up would be Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks, Mick McManus. And Kendo Nagasaki. And probably Jackie Palo as well would probably be the fifth one. And Kendo Nagasaki was a British man. Peter Thorley was his real name. And he's a cultural icon almost outside of professional wrestling. One person that took great interest in him was, I think his name's not Peter Green, but I'll have to look it up what his real name is. 
but he was the man that was behind the Sgt. Pepper's album. Yes, and actually this is where I first got weirdly enthralled with like Kendo Nagasaki was from two places. It was from him being one of those four names, which was on the Legends of Wrestling 2 video game. Him, McManus, Haystacks and Daddy were all included. And I think I stumbled across a BBC4 documentary once where I think it was that painter trying to track down Kendo Nagasaki so he could do a portrait of him. It's Peter Blake is his name. Yeah. And so, yes, his most famous work of art was the album cover to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And there is a documentary, as you say. It was actually well before BBC4. You might have seen it on BBC4. But it was made in 1999 for the BBC's Arena documentary series. All right, okay. Where he wanted to paint a portrait of Kendo Nagasaki. And they formed a friendship after that. I know they appeared on Danny Baker's interview show as well yeah around that time so kendo nagasaki is a figure that almost supersedes british wrestling in many ways he's an art he's like a pop art figure yeah that outlasted wrestling and the funny thing is as well that his name has different meanings in different places because there was a kendo nagasaki in japan as well i don't know how much that was just independent of him or if it was just a great co- uh coincidence coincidence or if it was a deliberate thing like, hearing the name Kendo Nagasaki was popular in the UK and thinking that was a good name and forming their own name, taking it themselves. But Peter Thorley was a man that was apparently very method in his ways. He wouldn't talk mm. to people backstage. He would go into the character. He would always wear his mask around the place. He genuinely studied the Japanese cultures of that time with his samurai costume that he would wear before the matches. And he did do a whole unmasking ceremony many years before this. But he wasn't really as over with the fans without the mask, and so he went back to the mask. Yeah. But it was made as a whole ceremony that it was like this great on un- removing, and he wore these. I remember seeing the unmasking ceremony on YouTube, and he wore these like black contact lenses, like pure black. I don't know how much he was able to wear them for the rest of the shows, but it became a thing. And as you see in this match, as what happens towards the end of it, he gets is mask removed and he must have maintained this look throughout his whole career it was like the samurai top knot look where every yeah. part of his head is shaved except for one part that's allowed to grow long and is plaited into a into a ponytail of sorts and he maintained it during all that time uh when he finally retired from wrestling he continued to do other things he came back to public attention a few years ago in quite very tragic circumstances there was a big one of the big news stories of the year that it happened was this returning soldier from the British Army, Lee Rigby, yeah, came back and was murdered in the streets because he was a known British soldier by a, well, just a, a, a madman, essentially, that was labelled uh, a, a pair, Yeah, a yeah. pair of um, fanatics. I thought it was just one guy. No, no, two. Okay. So, yeah, he was stabbed to death, and Kenon Nagasaki basically opened his doors up. It turns out he owned this great big country mansion estate. Now, given the payoffs British wrestlers were getting at that time, I don't know what else he was doing on the sides of that. You don't get that from British wrestling income alone. That's for sure. Maybe if you're part of the people behind the scenes, I don't know. I don't know how much the crab trees were making on the side. Mm. He's a Zen Buddhist, and every year would open his grounds up for Buddhist retreats for people. He's openly bisexual, 
And after Lee Rigby died, they opened that ground up and allowed people to live there. And they've done a whole thing for veterans and for the Rigby family. And he wrote an autobiography with the proceeds of it going to the Rigby family and the Rigby cause. And Mm. did interviews and everything. And it's fascinating watching little clips of it on YouTube of him doing talks of him. And he's just a normal guy and he's grown his hair out proper now. And he seems quite affable, quite avuncular. But he was so dedicated to this character. And I must admit, watching this match was a bit of a pleasant surprise to me because I think I'd always unfairly labelled him as part of the Giant Haystack's Big Daddy trilogy where it was all about the character and the presentation and not about the wrestling. But this guy, no, he could go and he was a big guy. Yeah. And it's funny, actually, all of them are quite big except for Blondie Barrett as well because Regal's legit 6'3". Robbie Brookside's clearly over six foot. Yeah. So is Ken Nagasaki. Ken Nagasaki's got bulk, but he can move. And he plays up to the crowd in all these great heelish ways. So it's like, if he'd have wanted to go to the States, I think he could have maybe made it there. Potentially. I mean, it's basically it's shithousery uh, with the tag rope and stuff. Absolutely fantastic. I think I think he had it all. I, I think I remember my mum saying she was a little scared of Kendo Nakasaki uh, growing up. Well, the mask is not a million miles away. The whole masking get-up is not a million miles away from a Doctor Who villain. It's it's one of those basic but effective designs, which is probably why it has stood the test of time as like what we say, like an, a pop icon in this country. One of the reasons it doesn't quite work for me is the fact that the the mask is, seems to be made of the same material as you wear for a woolly uh, <laughs> a woolly balaclava. I mean, I've always said that if I could have booked a British wrestling show and if I'd have been put in charge of world of sport wrestling in your dream scenario. I would have brought back the Nagasaki name. I would have had it be like the Batman League of Shadows, where since World of Sport collapsed, Kendo Nagasaki had returned to Japan to where he'd learnt these lessons. Because there's like a whole backstory for Kendo Nagasaki that he was channeling a great Japanese war. That's why he was Peter Thornley from Peterborough. You know, they couldn't hide the fact that he was a white dude, but he was. Um, I mean, now I guess you could do a whole thing about him being a cultural appropriator. <laughs> but his idea was that he was imbued by the spirits of a 15th century Jap- uh, samurai yeah. warrior. And I would have had a story where he returns to Japan to that ground and builds this wrestling training school. So he becomes like a Razal Ghoul type figure and bring in loads of wrestlers that all wrestle under the Nagasaki name, but then give them all first names that are, like, tributes to the great Japanese wrestlers. Yeah. So you'd have, like, Kenta Nagasaki, Mitsuharu Nagasaki, Toshiaki Nagasaki. Masinobu Nagasaki. And they would gain a mask when they pass. So uh, along the lines, I guess, along the lines of what the uh, Dark Order was at first, where wrestlers would have... Some of the guys would get masks and numbers. Yeah. So it wasn't a million miles away from that. Because I think you could very easily like re- refit him and retool him, but instead what they did was they made that. S- but the big fella, with oh, the mask. Oh god! And they yeah, basically made him into, you know, Kendo Haystacks essentially. Yeah. I think his gimmick name outside of World of Sport was Cyanide. Okay. Mm. Okay. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, we, we've we've blocked a lot of, uh, and and this is and I guess. People who have listened to our World of Sports series like wonder why I think we were so negative. We wanted it to succeed because yeah. we knew this was the gateway to wrestling becoming more mainstream in Britain because that's what people 
know is what the kind of stuff that we're talking about now, the Barrett. It's sort of panto, it's sort of not. So there is panto in this, yeah. I think that yeah. it's always been of that tradition. And playing up to the crowd. But what is also fascinating as well watching this match is you can already see where WWF is overtaking it. And one of the ways it's overtaking it is that they book things better and there is more of a storytelling flow to it. The thing with British wrestling is it always seems to be about presenting it as a sport. It, it doesn't feel like something that they talk about backstage before the match. The match will go until it goes. And it's funny, when William Regal moved to the United States, they were like, well, what's your finisher? And he'd never had a finisher. Yeah. Because it wasn't really something... You'd have some trademark moves. But I think in this match, they repeat certain moves over and over again. I think Robbie Brookside does a monkey flip at least three times in the match. He goes to that well a lot, yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like you had your moves and you had your setups and and you had your classic British wrestling spots and you just worked around them. You didn't adapt. You didn't tell a story on a narrative side of things. There wasn't a, you know, there's an isolation and a beat down, but then when there's a hot tag, when Robbie Brookside's been beaten down for so long to the point that he loses a fall... He hot tags in William Regal. But it's not like a Ricky Morton waiting and waiting and waiting and then the heel tags in and then he finally tags in. It's not like that. It's like Regal's in before Nagasaki's in. And instead of then it being a house on fire bump and feed and he's knocking them both down, Nagasaki, fair enough, is like like immediately stalls and holds up and says, I don't want to wrestle you. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he powers off and that's great but it like within the rhythms of what you're used to through american wrestling tag team wrestling being brought up on that it jars and it's not carrying you on on a story it's like an exhibition of of set moves and they go on until they have to go on yeah on the point of like not like america as well i think one of the reasons we're in the period now at the time of this match where the american stuff is overtaken is athleticism like i'm not it feels like we're clicking on Blondie Barrett, but he just—he did seem a tad clunkier than the other three in the ring. Yeah. Well, like the first one of the first spots in the match is him screwing up a leapfrog spot that essentially yeah means Robbie Brookside gets headbutt in the dick. Mm. Well, more in the groin, I suppose. And also from a physical standpoint, if you were looking at if you took those four to an audition in America like of the WWF at the time. Kendo could have been picked up, but in terms of like physique, Vince Vince wouldn't have took any of the others. But and you were seeing these big cartoonish like gargantuan men at WrestleMania and things like that, and you were just seeing because they were blokes from down the pub, <laughs> like a lot, a lot of forearm tattoos. Yeah, and it. I I, I guess when you've been exposed to like more superhero like people for example like your cousin's love of hulk hogan uh would have blossomed not long after this match i guess Mm. i can't see him falling in love with people like blondie barrett once he's seen people like hulk hogan it's not so much that with blondie barrett it's more just that he looks so low rent compared to what you would see because you know no kids are going to want to be blondie barrett but no kids wanted to be bad news brown no kids wanted to be king kong bundy no kids wanted to be earthquake no kids wanted to be heel andre the giant no kids wanted to be the brain busters but the way they were presented and packaged looked a lot better than all you know the model rick martell you know all those sort of classic heels 
And Blondie Barrett's just a not very good wrestler who wears biker shades, has a crap physique and navy tattoos, and accidentally headbutts people in the groin. And has a bit of a shit mullet. Yeah. He really is there for set decoration almost, it seems. Yeah. Well, not not de- set decoration, but it's... Is, well, he's there to get beaten up in the second fall and not be able to continue. The thing about it also is it always seems to be made up on the sp- as it's going along, all of this. Like, the match is being made up as they go along. They're like, I'm not sure what to do. I'll just do another monkey flip spot again. Yeah. And the announcer clearly didn't have a planned introduction. Mm. So he's just sort of babbling as it goes <laughs> along at the start. He really is improvising. No wonder they had to start an improv group in Bedworth if that's the best they could do. Also, why is the heel team have been the one in a two-on-one scenario? That that just doesn't make any yeah. sense. Well, I think it's because it's Ken and Nagasaki who's seen as this overwhelming big... You know, I mean, his most famous match against B- uh, Big Daddy, where Big Daddy turned fat, was at the start of Big Daddy's face run. Nagasaki beat him. Mm. So Nagasaki is like... Legit. Tippy top. Legit. Yeah. You know, him winning a handicap match doesn't come as a big surprise, especially if you do it the way he does it. <laughs> the way that it's structured is not like your traditional tag team matches, and I don't think, therefore, it doesn't it doesn't take the crowd on an emotional journey. The crowd is just there to observe, and the heels will do their heel shtick, the face will do their face shtick, but there's no, there's no body of it to it, really. It's strung together impressive wrestling moves very often. Because these are all, like I said, three of the four guys in this can go. I mean, you know, there's being overly produced, but you need to have something for, to hook me to it. And it really does go. It's like Ken and Nagasaki's given a public warning. And I like that. I like the yellow card system. Yeah. But then he just continues to cheat throughout it all in full view of the referee. And it's like, well, he can't do the second yellow to a red because that's not how it's booked. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense. Like something that gets him a public warning once is not enough to get him disqualified the second time. In a way, that would have made more sense for Blondie Barrett to be sent off. And then that would be why. But instead, it was that he got knocked out in the second fall and the ref said, yeah, you can't continue now. So why? Because I don't like you. Yeah. (laughs) That sort of seems to be where it's going. So the final fall is the Blondes beating up Kenna Nagasaki, mostly Robbie Brookside. And Robbie Brookside finally removes Kenna Nagasaki's mask. At which point, Kenan Nagasaki grabs him by the shoulders, looks him in the eye, puts him under a hypnotic spell, commands Brookside to return his mask, and then to attack his tag team partner, Steve (laughs) Ringle. Brings him in the ring. I think he hits him with a top rope knee drop, maybe? Yeah. Nagasaki pins him, wins the match, takes Brookside out of his spell. Then after the match, Robbie Brookside in his great Scouse accent, he's like, hey! Referee! Hey! I think he calls him like a divvy or yeah. something. I can't really remember. And Regal's just dumbfounded by the whole thing. Yeah, it is just a bit <laughs> crap nativity play at the end, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I wonder if this was them trying to do something to counteract the WWF with the wild personalities and everything. Yeah. But- I wonder if it's a. I wonder if it was a common spot in many of Kendo Nagasaki tag team matches. Just this was the one that made it to the tele. Yeah, he did do the hypnotism spot a few times. This isn't the only. In, I don't think this is the only televised incident either, mm. uh, to my knowledge. But I know he did it in like house shows. But it's one of those ones where it's like, oh, only a few months after this, British wrestling was taken off the telly. Yeah, and it's like it's kind of a post hoc ergo proctor hoc situation. 
after therefore because of it. This happened. After this happened, something else happened. Therefore, because it happened after this, it happened because of this. I'm with you. Yep. Like you say, it's silly pantomime stuff, especially in a world where in British wrestling there was always a sense of it. I've always said like British wrestling feels like a Ken Loach film in comparison. It's all gritty working class, you know, no nonsense lads down the pub <laughs> with, with forearm tattoos. <laughs> and to go to an earlier point, if you're presenting it as a sport, why jam a hypnotism spot into it? If you're being so like, oh, this is an athletic competition, but, you know, Darren Brown could, like, absolutely, like, one-bomb most of the people here. <laughs> uh, you, you know, the suspension of reality. But if you set a parameter of a sincere sporting contest, it's too much of a left turn, I feel. But it's fascinating to watch, and where Regal and Robbie Brooks' side, they were clearly, like, you know, they, they would almost be, in 1996 British wrestling scene, it would be, like... Jungle Boy and Darby Allen, like these are the two future stars of British wrestling. In the in after all this happens, because they both got good looks, they're both big, tall guys. And after this, Regal does end up going to WCW and was also very popular in Europe and everything. Robbie Brookside was always very well respected. He was still part of the wrestling scene during all of the doldrums. There was a documentary in the mid-90s that followed him around. It might have also been an arena documentary. And at one point, he meets up with Stephen Regal. And they chat, and and the, the friendship remained there through all these years. Yeah. And he kept wrestling. He did the Butlin sites. He did all of those. And he was part of FWA when they got... When when the British boom started, it was like it was the most unfortunate timing as far as his age goes. Mm. Really, that he was so young that he didn't experience the good times enough when they were there, and he was too old when the better times came afterwards. That he couldn't re- he wasn't really positioned as a yeah. top guy in that. But when they when they were doing the FWA old guard against the new guard, he was positioned as one of the old guard that stood mm. with the new guard. Like, no, the kids were right. Was he Kylie or Robbie? No, I don't know. Uh, he, it's so funny, though, that he's the like starter class, isn't he, for wrestlers in yeah. the NXT training camp? Based on breaking ground, I guess. But like that friendship with Regal and the fact that it stayed strong all those years. I mean, he got him work in WCW as well. Robbie Brookside was signed to WCW in the 96 yeah. period. And he was part of the cruiserweight scene. But I think the basic problem with Robbie Brookside was this is as good as he ended up looking. He never improved upon his physique, Mm. really. So he just was lanky. He could wrestle. He had some runs in Japan. He he would always work in Europe and everything. He was in the same best, the 1997 Best of Super Juniors tournament. It was him and he formed a tag team with a guy called Doc Dean. And they were sort of the best workers in the UK scene at that time of the 90s. But just weren't really being... There wasn't an interest in them at that point. But he kept going. He gave up a career in football. He was like on the Liverpool Youth Academy. I remember him talking about that. And he jacked it in to become a wrestler. And his... um, Whether it would have stuck or not, you know. In his uh, talk, his Jericho appearance, I remember him talking about his footballing uh, opportunities. Didn't like the headmaster make him stand up and say, this young man has thrown away his chances or something. So he's had a rough life. I remember the Guardian then, like, 15 years after the other documentary, followed him around when he was still touring around. And he's living in, you know, a rough estate in Liverpool. And that's where he was. Feels very Ken Loachian. And the fact that he's now living in Florida 
as a key part of the WS developmental territory, yeah. developmental system. With one of it, working with one of his best mates as well. Whether he keeps that job, you know, there's, there is a, a constant churning of trainers in the WWE department, but he seems like a key figure in that structure with Matt Bloom Regal. and Regal and, and others. Samoa Joe now seems like he's going to be a, f- a key feature of that as well yeah. going forward. But Vincent Mann seems to be taking a keener eye to all this. So is Johnny Ace. So is Bruce Pritchard. And maybe that's, if they want to change things up, maybe they don't want them being taught the Robbie Brookside way of things now. Maybe. I, I think, personally, uh, Brookside and Regal are fine. I don't see their positions as under threat. It's more like the creative wing of NXT's uh, product, which is obviously being completely revolutionised. Uh, NXT 2.0 is... Um, Big departure in terms of like production and uh, storytelling from NXT. I haven't sat down and watched a lot of it, but... Yeah, but that's the end product. We're talking about the earliest stage. I mean, I would have guessed that Kevin Owens and figures like them that were being brought in for NXT weren't having to go through the Robert Brookside drills. Uh, yeah, I think Finn did a lot of uh, basic drills for a long time when he got signed. Maybe as a favour favor i can't imagine that he was told that you have to do learn how to bump and then stand up what they're taught they're taught anything is how to work for the cameras yeah that's more terry taylor's end that's that's the finishing school well wasn't billy gunn the finishing school as well yeah yeah i don't know those things changed well obviously must have changed because gunn got fired i'm glad that robbie brookside found a, a way to earn a living i mean you know he never got a good time made it as a wrestler and it's but and he's still got a lovely head of hair. Oh, he does. Actually, the hair's gone back to what it was at this stage. But yeah, one of the one of the videos actually I saw when I was looking around after that Ken Nagasaki video was uh, him going to WXW and holding a tryout camp. And because he wrestled Germany so many times, he was doing a whole speech in German. So he obviously spoke a fair bit of German as well. Yeah. And and they showed him turning up at WXW and the fans are singing, he's coming home, he's coming, Rob, he's coming home. But then you can also see why Regal had a a great look and he already has the Mm. physique at that point he was doing. He always did very strict drills for for workout and everything. And he and Brookside just sort of on the fly wrestled a 60-minute match in the training centre in the WCW at one point. There is like video footage, I was like... I mean, that could be an interesting match of the week. I don't know if I want to dedicate that much time to it, but... Yeah. You can kind of see why... This was like British wrestling trying to do something they thought Americans would do, and it's just mm. not working in that environment. It's too little too late, I suppose. Because it's also about the presentation. It's about the lighting, and, you know, no no offence to the Bedworth Civic Hall. It doesn't look that great compared to Madison Square Garden. Oh, it, no, no, the crowd are horribly lit. They are horribly lit. Well, it's fun. like British wrestling from 86 doesn't look any different to British wrestling from 71. Yeah. There is no real difference in the presentation of this compared to the presentation of Brian Glover's thing. And while it's fine for Panto, as that's like obviously traditional, even Panto like evolves a li- like more than the presentation of wrestling had. I haven't been to Panto for a long time, so I can't comment one way or another. I don't know, but there's nothing much. I'm just looking through my notes because I actually never really referred to my notes. The announcer really makes up as he go along. Why do they na- announce Blondie Barrett as the Rock and Roll Express? An Express cannot be one man. Yeah, well, yeah, but they literally announce him as the Rock and Roll Express and then the sign says Blondie Barrett. <laughs> I was like, well, what is he? <laughs> is he the Rock and Roll Express Blondie Barrett? Is this like a situation like uh, Michael Buffer at the Royal Rumble? 
where he only announced Shawn Michaels as the Heartbreak Kid and didn't bother with anything else. Yeah. He obviously didn't look over to the next card. Oh, yeah, Nagasaki pinning Robbie Brookside off of a backdrop. Uh, they, they are uh, mean things, those backdrops back in the day. Oh, yeah, Blondie Barrett also tripped over the ropes at one point. Oh, yeah, the ropes were loose as hell. Uh, yeah. Everything seems to be falling apart in this match, especially the ring. Oh, the ring's probably from 1971. Yeah. As, as is the booking and everything. Well, not actually the booking, but, you know, as is everyone else. I think everyone else has seen their better days in 1971, except for Regal and Barrett at this point. Although, as we say, Nagasaki maybe could have. Some people might have prejudices with Nagasaki that they match with Big Daddy in Giant Haystacks, and that's very much not the case from this match. Mm. He was a big guy that could go. And this is quite long into it as well, 1996. I mean, I'm curious actually how old he would be at this point. Yeah, because he'd been around like a long time already in the UK scene uh, come the time of this Yeah, of course, yeah. As you say, he's in great shape. He's like agile. I I, I wonder if there's some yoga involved with his Buddhist-like teachings. Mm. So 1941, so he would be 45 at this point. Yeah, he moves like a man like younger than 45. Mm. And British 1945, and British <laughs> 45 as well. In the 80s British 45. Think of that. But yeah, I think maybe at some point we should do, maybe if we ever do a wrestling book club to add to our 15 other ideas, maybe we could do Kendall Nagasaki's autobiography. Perhaps. But anyway, Simon, our next match of the week, it's my choice next time. And it, we're going to keep with uh, four people, one of whom is, two of whom are masked, actually. But it's not a tag team match, despite what they might think at one point. But it's figures in 2009 that would coalesce at different points into very important parts of American wrestling going forward, with one exception. But it is a four-way elimination match from DDT's King of Trios event, three-night event, at the ECW Arena in 2009 and the participants are Chikara's homegrown Jigsaw facing off with El Generico and one half of the Young Bucks Nick Jackson and the Golden Star himself Kota Ibushi yeah baby a lot a lot of star power in this match talk about a liner but until then, if people want to get in touch with you, Simon, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm signing as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of falls in this match, because I'm very, very lazy. My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, as in the first two letters of Nagasaki, switched around. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. And if you go to patreon.com slash lmtyspod, you can see how you can make some donations to our funds to keep the lights on. Because God knows our connections are, are pretty atrocious right now, aren't they, Simon? As we go into the end of part two of our recording. Yeah, we have we have a couple of Wi-Fi gremlins at the minute. Yeah. There's nothing to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week. Oh, 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 oh,